Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, it's Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, uh, Dr. Paul Offit. Uh, he's the director of the Vaccine Education Center. Uh, he's an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We've spoken before about uh, COVID and various issues. Um, we're going to cover a new book he has uh, called Tell Me When It's Over, An Insider's Guide to Deciphering COVID Myths and Navigating Our Post-Pandemic World. So welcome back, Paul. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, if you would, you know, just give listeners a quick background on you if they haven't heard from you before. I know you were involved in the development of, uh, you know, several vaccines and, uh, you know, you're pretty high stature uh, in this field and you've done quite a bit. So, you know, maybe you could fill folks in on a bit of your background. Sure. Did residency training in pediatrics, fellowship training in pediatric infectious diseases, and then pretty much immersed myself in the laboratory for about 25 years, working with uh, Stanley Pocken and Fred Clark on the development of strains that ultimately became the bovine human reassortant vaccine, Rotatec. In, uh, and then during part of that time, uh, I was, I've been a member of the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices. And um, in 2000, Charlotte Moser and I started something called the Vaccine Education Center in response to what we thought was just a lot of bad information out there about vaccines. And so we've been doing that now for more than 20 years. And that's pretty much it. I'm currently on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee. So I think that's really part of the inspiration for this book. It was a catharsis because I think there was a lot that went right and a lot that went wrong during this pandemic. Okay. Well, let's get into some of that. So you know, what are, what are some of the, I don't know, the public has been exposed to all kinds of information from all kinds of sources. What do you see as some of the helpful information that's out there? And then what do you see as some of the you know information that maybe just isn't true or is skewed with it or it skews public opinion in a negative way? I think on the one hand, you had a virus, SARS-CoV-2, that was isolated and sequenced in January 2020. And then 11 months later, using a technology, messenger RNA, that had never been used to make a commercial vaccine before, with which we had no experience, um, you, we had done two large clinical trials, Pfizer 40,000 prospective placebo control, Moderna 30,000 prospective placebo control, to show that the vaccine worked well. I think then in about six or seven months, without an infrastructure really in place to mass vaccinate adults, we vaccinated 70% of the U.S. population. I think that was the most amazing single medical or scientific accomplishment in my lifetime, and my lifetime includes the development of a polio vaccine. But then then there were things that we could have done better. I think you're right. I think probably one of the bigger mistakes we made was fairly early on in July of 2021. So now the vaccine's been out there for about seven months. There was an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts. So thousands of men get together. They're celebrating the July 4th holiday. Most are vaccinated. Um, Nonetheless, there's an outbreak of COVID. 346 men who were vaccinated, which at that time meant two doses, got COVID. 
uh, four were hospitalized, which is a hospitalization rate of a little over 1%, which is excellent. That's the vaccine working well. The rest had mild or asymptomatic infection, which the CDC unfortunately labeled as breakthrough infections. So breakthrough means failure. I think it's not a good word here. What you want from this vaccine is what you just accomplished, which is you wanted to take a, vi- a, a disease that could be serious and fatal and make it a mild or asymptomatic infection. And I don't think people ever got that. I, I think they still think, hey, look, I got a vaccine, or worse, I was made to get a vaccine, I was mandated to get a vaccine, and yet, and yet still, I have COVID. You know, the CDC lied to me. I don't think we we got the, the expectations right of what you can and can't expect from this vaccine. This kind of virus, short incubation period, mucosal infection, is going to continue to circulate, continue to cause mild disease, even if the whole world was vaccinated, and even if the virus never mutated and created variants, it would still cause mild disease in, in pretty much everyone. Well, I think that's maybe that's the problem is people, you know, are not sophisticated about this. They were told literally safe and effective, safe and effective. You know, a lot of them were made to get it. So, you know, if you're the common person and that's where you're being told and you're made to get it, you would think, well, why would they make me get this? And why would they tell me this if there's any issues with it? I guess I guess the expectation was probably so high that, you know, anything that negative happened, people would be like, oh, it's not working. You know, what's wrong? You know, I think that the early clinical trials were misleading in the sense that the data that were presented in December of 2020 from Pfizer and Moderna, protection efficacy was 95%, not only against severe disease, it was also 95% against mild disease. The reason that was true was those were three-month studies. So those participants had just gotten their second dose. So therefore, they had high levels of circulating uh, neutralizing antibodies, which were effective. But, but then six months later, what happened is what you would expect. Protection against severe disease was continuing to hold up in the 90-plus percent range, but protection against mild disease had faded to about, you know, 50% effectiveness because, you know, mild infection is prevented by circulating antibodies in the bloodstream, but those fade over time. And I don't think that's anything we ever got people to understand. Rod DeSantis, for example, on his stump speeches would say, you know, the CDC told us that this vaccine was going to work and it didn't. And I think that's what he was referring to, that still, even though you got vaccinated or naturally infected or both, still, you know, six, six months, eight months later, you got a mild infection. Well, do you think that if they had told people, all right, the vaccines will last this long, but probably every year you're going to need to get an update, do you think they would have been a lot less compliance? Like, did they, could they have told people everything that they were expected to experience or no? Like, what do you think is the, the root of the miscommunication? Well, I think even that's been confusing. So, for example, the term used to be booster dose, that every year you were recommended to receive a booster dose. That's kind of morphed into a yearly campaign much like flu, which is to say every year, everyone over six months of age is expected to get a updated vaccine in a manner similar to flu. But this, this virus really isn't flu. And we're pretty much the only country that does that. The European countries, the Scandinavian countries, World Health Organization, Australia, all pretty much just target high-risk groups, which makes sense because the, the goal of the vaccine is to prevent serious illness. So then the question becomes, who's getting seriously ill? And pretty much it falls into four groups. The elderly, especially what Rochelle Walensky referred to when she was CDC director, God bless her, as the elderly elderly, which put me out of that category, people over 75. And then high-risk medical conditions like, you know, uh, chronic heart disease or lung disease or obesity or diabetes, people who are pregnant and people who are immune compromised, those are the ones you're trying to, to keep out of the hospital. So I would argue those are the ones you should target. It's just done pretty much in every other country but ours. So what happens in other countries every year with flu, for instance, like, again, only the high-risk populations will be offered those particular vaccines or, you know, what happens? No, they tend to to give make that a, a yearly vaccine. Flu really is a little different than, than this virus. I mean, 
this virus, um, you, you because of basically T-cell immunity, you, you still have pretty long-lasting protection against serious illness. Flu is the ultimate moving target. I mean, it's not only did flu, mute, well, all viruses mutate, but it's not only did it sort of mutates away from recognition by um, antibodies induced by natural infection or vaccination. It does it even uh, during the during the winter months. I mean, it continues to evade even during the winter. The virus continues to, to uh, evade. And even during a single infection, it does. I mean, you could argue actually reasonably you could get a flu vaccine sort of at the beginning of the, of, of the winter months and then sort of in the middle of the winter months. I mean, I know people who are vaccine experts who do that. That would make more sense. But flu is the ultimate moving target. I actually trained in a flu lab at the Wistar Institute many years ago. And the guy who was the head of that lab said something I'll never forget. And I think he was absolutely right. This is like 40 years ago. He said, if you want a research career that lasts the rest of your life, study influenza. Is it changes so much? Okay. So I don't even know what messaging there is right now about about COVID. I, I I don't know. It just seems to have become like a blur. But what are there any recommendations right now? If you were you know in charge of the messaging for COVID, what would it be right now? You know, in, in 2024, it would be let's keep people out of the hospital. And so here are the people most likely to be hospitalized. So let's let make sure that you've gotten a vaccine. You know, a, an updated vaccine which is closer to the circulating strain. I think that would make the most sense to target those high-risk groups, and also, you know, for young children, um, or the least vaccinated group. The group most likely to be hospitalized right now are people over sixty-five. The second group most likely to be hospitalized in terms of age are people over fifty, because that group has a higher incidence of the chronic diseases that put you at higher risk. The third group most likely to be hospitalized is children less than five, and and they're generally healthy. They come in with croup or bronchiolitis or viral pneumonia because they're not vaccinated. I mean, the vaccination rate in children less than five is around 5%. You know, 95% of young children aren't vaccinated, and that's why it is that they're getting hospitalized. And I really do think uh, we need to focus more on that. Okay. So now the messaging, you, you would say, again, if you were in charge of it, it would, it would be specific to these high-risk groups. Everyone else, would you say anything to them or just leave them be? Or like, what would be the messaging to the regular population? I think the message for the, for the rest of the population would be you could choose to get a vaccine if you like. Some people are more comfortable with that. It's basically low risk, low reward. I think people are also worried about long COVID and they see repeat vaccination as a way to avoid long COVID. And I think the data to date are that that certainly there was a study out of Italy, which I think uh, described it well. What they did was they looked at people who weren't vaccinated at all and then got COVID and found, at least according to their definition, that the incidence of long COVID was 42%. Then they looked at people who got one dose of vaccine and then got COVID. And the incidence of long COVID went from 42% to 30%. Then they looked at people who got two doses of vaccine and then got COVID. And the incidence went from 30% to 17%. Then there were people who got three doses of vaccine and then got COVID. And the incidence of long COVID went from 17% to 16%. So that wasn't a difference. So it doesn't look like there's much of a difference really beyond three doses in terms of protection against long COVID. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What well, what would the vaccine look like today? You know, we've had the Omicron and the Delta. I'm sure it's proliferated into you know, 
Oh. Who knows how many variants? So what would it contain? You know, is it like, again, is it like flu at all, where every year you need to reassess what the dominant strains are and have that in a cocktail for a vaccine? Or like, what's the guidance now? Well, for right now, it's, it's what we do is in um, May, we, the FDA Vaccine Advisory Committee, picks the strain that, that's most likely to be circulating over the next few months or so. So it's always been Omicron, really, since the end of 2021, since December 2021, it's always been one of the Omicron variants. I mean, that first vaccine was a bivalent vaccine with BA4, BA5, and then this this time it's sort of the XBB15, and, and then I'm sure we'll pick another one this year for the for the yearly campaign. But, but know that... Um, there are conserved regions, meaning regions that are identical across all these variants that are recognized by T-cells that do protect you against severe disease. So it's not quite as dire. Even if you've just gotten the original strain, the Wuhan strain, and gotten, say, three doses of that with at least two doses separated by four months, you're probably protected against severe disease for a fairly long time, assuming you're healthy and relatively young. I literally just saw a bus go by outside the window. And it, it showed people, it said, protect yourself from COVID and flu too. So are they, are they trying to combine both now into a single shot or series that, of shots? Yeah, that seems to be what's happening. So it's it's a, the question is, I don't know the answer to this. I mean, I would argue that if for COVID, if you think that, that the goal is to keep people out of the hospital, then let's target those groups that are most likely to be hospitalized. There are some in public health that believe the best way to get those groups vaccinated is to just say recommended for everybody. And they may be right. I don't know. It's certainly a, a study that's doable. I haven't seen that study. But no, I do think we're moving to this sort of yearly COVID, yearly flu campaign. I think we're already there. And I do think you're right. I think this these vaccines will be behind at some point. It was mentioned over you know, the past few years of uh, you know reporting to the VAERS database, the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System. Any insight into, into VAERS? You know, anything that useful that came out of the reporting there on how to tailor things going forward in the future? Yeah. Uh, first of all, the, the um, Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, or VAERS, is misnamed. I think any reasonable person who looks at that would think this is where vaccine adverse events are reported. But it really should be called SVERS, suspected vaccine adverse events, because much of what's reported, virtually all of what's reported, are not actually causal associations. They're coincidental associations. But where VAERS has been valuable is the early cases of myocarditis, you know, inflammation of the heart muscle, were actually first picked up by VAERS. And then when you did the right kinds of studies within programs like the Vaccine Safety Data Link, where you could, you, where you had a control group, you could look at who got vaccinated, who didn't get vaccinated, to see whether the incidence of myocarditis was greater than background. And it was. Same thing with Johnson & Johnson's uh, vectored virus vaccine. When you found that that it was a rare cause of blood clotting, including blood clotting in the brain, including fatal blood clotting in the brain, which was rare, like one per 200,000 uh, vaccinees, but real. And that ultimately drove that, that vaccine off the market. It hasn't been uh, used since May of last year. So yeah, I think VAERS is good, I guess, as a hypothesis generating mechanism. It can detect the signal, but then you have to actually do the kinds of studies where you're looking at those who got vaccinated or didn't get vaccinated to see whether it's a real association. Oh, okay. So VAERS is the first step. But like you said, specific studies need to be done from the, the potential um, links that, that, they're, that they're saying have been reported. Does that happen? I mean, with, with all VAERS reporting every year, is it used like that, like a dragnet or an early, uh, like you said, hypothesis generating system that can be followed up on? Yeah, it was sort of put in place during the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act in 1986. In many ways, it was a gift to the anti-vaccine activists because it is the single most misused system. I mean, you get 
Tucker Carlson or Ron Johnson out getting out there in front of the public saying, you know, 3,000 people have died after getting a COVID vaccine. Yeah, you know, because the COVID vaccine doesn't make you immortal. I mean, it's not, you know, if you look at those deaths, you find that it's not really causally associated with vaccination. It's just coincidence. And I think that's where it gets misused. And, and I, in many ways, I think we probably would be better, better off without theirs and just use the vaccine safety data link, which at least has the right control groups that enable you to see whether something really is a true uh, causal effect and not just a coincidence. Oh, how does the other system work, the vaccine safety data link? Yeah, so that was also put in place as part of the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. And it's a linked computerized medical record system that involves, you know, a significant percentage of the country, about 9, 10% of the country. And you very quickly can tell in real time when a vaccine rolls out, who's gotten a vaccine, who hasn't gotten a vaccine, and whether there is an increase in, in a particular adverse event in the vaccinated group. It's an excellent system. And it, it provides a proof as compared to theirs, which is just a very noisy system where anybody can report anything. There was a, a, a uh, physician in uh, Oregon, I think, named Jim Laidler, who reported that he had received the vaccine and that he had turned into the Incredible Hulk. And that ends up in the system. I mean, it's still, you can find it there. There's no screening away from that. So that that's the problem with that system. So what are the, uh, the CDC and the other, you know, entities, which systems do they use? Like, do they do they just look at VAERS and they're like, oh, well, it's there, but we ignore it. And they use other systems. Like, how is feedback gathered on the performance of a given vaccine when it's you know, in public use, what's, what are the useful places where you get data? So they use both systems. I think they use VAERS at best as like a, a warning device. I mean, that if some suddenly there's, there's a big increase in, in a particular side effect that wouldn't have been inspected, expected, then they go to the vaccine safety data link, which allows you to do sort of the right kinds of controls. Well, I, I would say that the rotavirus vaccine that came out in 1998 that was called Shield was found in VAERS to have this increased number of cases of intussusception, right? Intestinal blockage where the small intestine telescopes into itself. And, and that can be a serious and even fatal uh, problem. And so that raised the hypothesis. And then through the vaccine safety data link, you could see that that really was a real association. You did have an increased risk of intussusception if you'd gotten that vaccine, Shield and the other. So that was an ex- example of VAERS working well. But for the most part, it's largely misused to scare people. Okay. And it sounds like I guess the law of large numbers is critical. You know, if there's a couple of reports of X, Y, Z, eh, but if there's a lot of them, okay, at least it gives you a clue to look deeper in the proper way, like you said, with the proper experimentation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So what are you seeing as the future of COVID? You know, like you said, it'll turn into this yearly campaign without a flu. Are there any other major events that are shaping it? You know, where is it headed? Where is it going? Are there new variants coming of significance? Like, what, what are you seeing in the whole picture of things? If I had to make a guess, you probably should never make guesses about this virus or this disease because you're always wrong, but I'll, I'll make a guess anyway. I think what will likely happen is that this virus, SARS-CoV-2, will enter the sort of pantheon of winter respiratory viruses, like, you know, the four strains of human coronavirus that are circulating, as well as, you know, respiratory syncytial virus, influenza virus, parainfluenza mm-hmm. virus metanumavirus. I mean, all of those viruses can cause, um, you know, hospitalization and death, I I think. And so then the question is, how do you handle COVID here? And I think what makes the most sense, and the CDC is getting there, they're getting better on this. I think if you're in a high-risk group, those four high-risk groups that I alluded to earlier, and you have respiratory symptoms, congestion, cough, runny nose, sore throat, test yourself. If you have COVID, treat yourself with an antiviral agent early, preferably in the first few days, because that'll dramatically decrease your chance of being hospitalized or dying. 
And also stay home if you're sick. If you can stay home, stay home until you start to feel better. Because by that time, you know, the amount of virus that's shedding, it decreases as the immune response abates because it's the immune response that causes the symptoms. So so the CDC recently said like one day of not having fever. That actually makes sense. And sort of targets more to the patient rather than an arbitrary number of days. If you're not in a high risk group and you have respiratory symptoms, don't test yourself. Because if you're COVID positive, you're not going to treat yourself or you shouldn't treat yourself anyway. But all of those viruses, can cause harm. I mean, influenza, two years before SARS-CoV-2 came into this country, influenza caused 800,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths. RSV really kills 10,000 to 14,000 people a year. So, so assume now you have a virus that can cause harm to other people. And what you should do is stay home if you're sick until you start to feel better. And if you can't stay home because many people can't because their sort of work policies don't allow for that, then at least wear a mask when you, when you go in. I was actually at an airport in Florida. And there was, there was, I was sitting there and there was a hospital employee who was kind of walking around, he was collecting garbage and he was, he was uh, sweeping up in the aisles where there were people waiting for the plane. And he was coughing and sneezing and he was sort of wiping his nose on his, his uh, shirt. <laughs> and was, here are these older people because it's Florida, you know, watching him do this. And one woman, elderly woman says, you know, did you test yourself, meaning for COVID? And he said, yes. But see, the implication was that now he's good. Now he could walk around with flu or RSV or these other viruses, which can also cause hospitalization and death. At the very least, assuming he wasn't able to stay home, he should wear a mask. And I think we're not very good at that. So what kind of feedback have you gotten uh, from your book? How long has it uh, been out there? And, you know, again, what's what's the uh, the feedback from people in the health industry uh, versus, you know, like the regular people? It seems to be really good. I, I was, I was, um, it came out last week. I was actually on Morning Joe last I think it would be on Meet the Press next week for Meet the Press. But it, it's been good. People seem to like it. I mean, for me, it was cathartic. I think there were a lot of things that happened during this pandemic that were disappointing. And I just felt like I just needed to say it. And so I feel much better now. And I think people who they were close to the situation, either with the FDA or CDC, I think appreciated at least explaining this in, in, in a way that, that hopefully will be uh, compelling to people and interesting. You know, I get into the business of, you know, was it a lab leak and what was really the birth of conspiracy theories for this virus? And, you know, did the FDA do the right thing early on with things like hydroxychloroquine and things like that? I, I get into into that. So it was it was fun to write. Okay. I mean, what projects are you, uh, I don't know if you can say, but, you know, what what's happening with you going forward? What's your attention going to be turning to now? Well, we have our Vaccine Education Center, which takes a lot of work, who's constantly putting out educational materials, and then we have webinars, and I've been doing a lot of podcasts, and, and we'll see. It's been, this book has sort of taken over me for the last few weeks, but hopefully things will start to settle down a little bit. So we'll see. But I, I don't know. I think I think I may at some point write a book uh, called Nobel Prize Disease. <laughs> what would that be about? It's a thing. It's it's it has a Wikipedia site, and the the point is is that very smart people, including Nobel Prize winners, are in many ways uniquely susceptible to biases and false beliefs and conspiracy theories. And there's a fairly large psychological literature now for why people often ask, you know, boy, I don't get it. This person who's you know expert in this field then proceeds to say this just crazy thing. I mean, this sort of is an example. Luc Montagnier wins the Nobel Prize for his discovery of human immunodeficiency viruses the cause of age. Then later, he sets up a clinic in China to treat autism with antibiotics because he believes that'll work. So, you know, it's just you find these amazing contrasts and and I just find that psychologically interesting. Yeah, well, it is very interesting. All right. I guess, uh, yeah, I guess that, that's where we're at. So you're going to be doing the, uh, the media rounds for the next few months and I'm sure you'll be sick of talking about this at that point, even though it was the catharsis and then, then you know, lots of newer stuff. Right. 
Well, very good. Well, Paul, so people can get the book. It's out now. They can get it on Amazon. I'm sure and everywhere else books are, uh, you know, are available. Are there any other titles that you've written that you think would be helpful for people to go through either first or after and to give more of uh, your perspective on, you know, on all of this? Right. Well, if I wrote a book called, um, do you believe in magic? Kind of the sense and nonsense of alternative medicine. I wrote another book called overkill when modern medicine goes too far, but it, it's sort of the skeptics as distinct from cynic. It's sort of a skeptical look at the things that we do in medicine and science that are for the good and sometimes not for the good. Like I wrote a book called Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, just sort of those inventions that did far more harm than good, albeit being mm-hmm. really But yes, yeah, so, so, sure. If you want to look at those books, they're generally entertaining. Okay. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.